Welcome back. We're going to continue our little study on looking at the Quran itself, looking at an overview of the verses in the Quran that really address uh, women. Uh, but of course, remember when the Quran addresses issues to do with women, it has, has as much impact on a man as it does on a woman. So if the Quran says that a woman can be beaten, Surah 434, then of course that affects the man. The man then thinks it's okay to beat his wife. If the Quran teaches, as Surah 4.3 does, that a man can have four wives, then a young Muslim man is raised up knowing that he doesn't have to be faithful to just one wife. And so from a biblical perspective, that man's mind and his morality is affected simply by the theology of his religion. So you can see how the view of woman in Islam has as much impact as it does on a man. And also that brings up all sorts of pastoral situations. So for example, if you're working in the Muslim world and you bring a Muslim through, you introduce him to Christ and the Muslim comes through to Christ and he gives his life to the Lord Jesus, he becomes a Christian, he leaves Islam. And if a Muslim man does that, but he has four wives or he has two wives, or maybe the woman he's married to can't have children. And so he's been contemplating up to that point about taking on another woman so that he could have children. You as a Christian person then has to bring this new Muslim, ex-Muslim uh, convert to Christ into maturity into Christ and there's all sorts of pastoral issues and all sorts of uh, confrontations you will have to do both through prayer as well as just teaching good theology, biblical theology to replace it with the kind of perversions that we see written through this book. Now, before I go any further, I just want to say, it's a little bit of a caveat, I just want to say something um, as we, again, get deeper into some of this um, more gritty material and start looking at uh, the verses of, of woman and man in, in Islam and in the Quran. Um, we would, uh, the, the, those of us who are in the studio here, we were just uh, talking in a little short break about how so often, and this happens a lot in the West, so often uh, women uh, will uh, go have a Muslim friend They'll go visit a Muslim friend uh, or they'll go to an, a Muslim event. And of course, it's wonderful. It's a Christian. You're invited to a Muslim event. And so many uh, Christian women will think that in order to love their Muslim friend, they need to make themselves look a little bit more Islamic uh, or they uh, need to wear the hijab. There's been controversies in America of uh, Christian uh, scholars, for example, wearing the hijab, the Islamic veil. Uh, women on Bible institutions sometimes think, oh, to identify with my Muslim friend, I must, I must put on that veil and um, I, I want to buy a scarf so I look like them and, I, and I, can, I can dress in a way that's appropriate for their context. My response to this is be very, very careful in how you identify with our dear Muslim folk. You see, there's a lot in this book that as a Christian, I'm very, very deeply troubled by. There's a lot in their practices, including the hijab, because the hijab means segregation. It means a barrier. That's what hijab is. That's what it means. Hijab is a barrier between the woman and other people, the woman and non-Muslims, the woman and men. And so we as women, when we identify with our Muslim friends by putting a hijab on, we are identifying ourselves not only with a religion that has a barrier between God and us and between man and woman, but we're identifying ourselves with an ideology, with a theological religious practice that is not what the biblical God teaches. So when we identify with our Muslims, we must be people of both love, because that's what these Christian girls want to do. They're trying to show love. But what have the Christian girls done? They've forgotten uh, truth. They love without truth. 
So Christians tend to go one of two ways. We either love so much that we forget the truth and therefore we compromise our religion, i.e. putting on hijabs. Now, again, as just a little uh, side note, when I uh, was traveling through the Middle East and I was traveling, uh, not the Middle East, actually through Persia, I should say, and I was traveling up into Iran, I had to wear a hijab. I couldn't leave the house unless I had one on. That was not my choice. That was an imposition on me by the Iranian government. And I had to do it. And I did do that. But I would never do that if I had had the choice. I only did it because it was the law of the land. And I couldn't leave the house and I couldn't visit any other Muslims unless I wore that veil. But I won't do it when I have the freedoms because I, I will not identify with their ideology, with their religion. And what I want to show as we keep going through some of these verses, really want us to see that um, there's so much in this religion that when we love the Muslim, we, it, we do not accommodate the religion and we do not take on their practices. We don't have to take on any of their practices. We can identify with the person. So we love the person, but we love truth as well. And when you love truth, you love the truth of the Bible and you love, um, you love the truth of the Bible, you know that this is what will replace Islam itself. You know this is what is the solution and the answer to this book here. And so you love the truth enough to confront the falsehood which we see written in this book, the Quran. So let's get to that Quran now with that exhortation of truth and love together. Don't separate them. Christians have a tendency to, to love truth too much and forget to love. So they hate Islam and they end up hating Muslims. That is not biblical. Then Christians will love the Muslims so much they start accommodating and almost loving the religion of Islam. That's not biblical. The Bible um, and biblical truth is love and truth together. You love the Muslim. You do not love Islam. You love the truth. So you bring is Muslims out of their religion into into the truth into Christ. So let's hold those two um, idea, biblical ideas in tension as we begin to delve now into the Quran. So we were talking about slave girls. Remember we talked about um, in the last session, get out clauses uh, for Muslim men that uh, they could take a, a woman um, and whatever their right hand possessed, the slave girl, the woman they own, and they could possess them. They could marry them. They didn't necessarily have to marry them, unfortunately. We will see that in the life of Muhammad. I want to now go to that big verse that most people know about. That's Surah 434. And when you look at Surah 434, it starts out, and there's three parts to this verse. Most people jump right to the end where it talks about punishment, how a man, a husband can punish his wife. I just want to step back a few paces. Let's start with the beginning of Surah 434. It says that men excel women. Do you remember earlier on um, in the last session, we talked about another verse that said that men have a degree over women, Surah 2, uh, verse 228. When Surah 434, it has this idea again, men excel women. And the way a Muslim will respond to that says, oh, not in, not in identity, but she's the one who maintains his belongings. So when he's traveling, she's the one that maintains and looks after the home. And so she protects his belongings. And so he excels her in that, in that sort of way where he is above her in, in what they own and so on. It's manipulating the text a little bit to come to that. It really is the concept that men excel women. Men are above women. You just have to read the rest of the verse to understand the real meaning of this text. So men excel women. Then in the second part of it, it says, righteous women are devoutly obedient to the husband, devoutly obedient to the husband. We think, well, um, the Bible talks about righteous women. It talks about submission and headship and all those things. And different churches will have different ways to implement that and, and understand that. But it never says 
that righteous women are devoutly to the husband in a sense where the husband, if, she, if he even thinks, even thinks she's done something wrong, he can punish her. The Bible never says that. There's never that idea in the, in the Bible. In the Quran, though, this idea that if you think, it's not if you know, but the, the Arabic implies if you think she has been, uh, if, if she has upset you, now, Muslims say it means if she has been immoral, if she has committed adultery, if she has done something lewd. That's how modern exegetes try to interpret it. That's not necessarily what's implied in the text. So if you think she's done something or you're upset with her, it says, first of all, you can, um, you can admonish her. And then you can, uh, it says, separate her from your bed or throw her from your bed, um, i.e. neglect her in the most intimate part of your marriage, the part where the New Testament so clearly says that man and woman comes together and only by mutual choice do you abstain and then you come back together quickly so that you are not tempted and so on and you belong one to another in 1 Corinthians 7. But here in the Quran, it talks about how um, a man, he can neglect her in the most intimate, vulnerable place of their marriage. And then it says, then he can beat her until she obeys him. Again, Muslims say, oh, no, no, it just means light beating. It's just a little tap. Uh, again, that's not implied in the text. The text implies a wadrub, a darab, a beating, a drumming. It's the idea of a punch. Some early translations used to interpret it as scourge. It was that serious. And Muslims will say, no, 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 it's like a toothpick. Muhammad used to have these little uh, twigs that he would clean his teeth with. Say you beat them with a toothpick um, so it doesn't really harm them. Again, I say the passage doesn't imply that. First of all, you admonish. If that doesn't work, you separate her from the bed. And then if that doesn't work, you beat her until she obeys you. Now, some who've read these texts say, in fact, it's not even a progression. It's just he can can admonish her, he can separate her from the bed, and he can beat her. Um, But then it says, until she obeys you. So it's quite obvious that you do something until she's brought into surrender and submission. And this whole concept of surrender and submission is right through Islam. You bow down to your master Allah. You bow down without thinking, asking questions, and you are his Abdullah, his slave. You are an Abdullah. You are a slave of God. Um, The woman comes under the husband's authority in a way that he excels her. He is above her. She has to be absolutely obedient. And if she displeases him, he can then punish her in these three different ways that we've just said. Well, what about the woman? What can the woman do? If she thinks that her husband has done something against her or he's maybe been a bit lewd or he's he's upset her, what can she do? You turn to Surah 4 verse 128. And in Surah 4, verse 128, it says that a woman must try to work it out peacefully with her husband, for Allah is pleased with this. So it's the idea that she has no way to make her husband uh, 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 come alongside her or come back to her. She has to try to work it out peacefully because this is what Allah in, is pleased with. So for the woman, she has no nothing to fall back on to give her any sort of clout with the male, but the male has all the authority in the world to discipline his wife. Now, I once, in a sort of jokingly way, I said to a a Muslim missionary once, I said, well, what if I want to beat my husband? Am I allowed to beat my husband? And of course, he started laughing his head off because he thought it was the funniest thing, saying, well, women are weak. Women are smaller. Of course, you can't beat your husband. I said, why does the Quran allow you to beat me, but I can't beat my husband? Do you see what kind of book is this? What kind of God is this? What does this say about the character of God and how he views woman and how he views man? Help Muslims to think that through. Here's another verse, brilliant verse to use when you're talking with a Muslim. 
I used it a lot. Surah 5 verse 6. Let me see if I can quickly turn to it because I think it's worth reading. And I would really encourage you to get a Quran and to read a Quran. And what I do is, uh, you won't be able to see this, but we always have Arabic on one side and then your language on the other side. Because Muslims won't accept your language, they only will accept uh, Arabic. So we, we, uh, we always have an Arabic, uh, for in Britain, Arabic-English Quran. Let me just read in the English, and Muslims would like you to read it in the Arabic, because this is what often happens. You'll read a verse in your language that they will understand, because it's their first language too, and they will see how troubling it is. Then what they will often reply is, well, read it in the Arabic, because the idea is that if it's in the Arabic, then it's not quite so troubling in the English, because the English or your language might have got the translation wrong, which is quite true, it often does. Whether that is an actual manipulation or on purpose, I won't say, but they often the English or your language a translation will be a bit different from the Arabic. But still the same themes are there. The same themes are still in there. So what I often say to them, especially if it's a verse I really want to use with a Muslim friend, I will, I will sit down with an Arabic-speaking friend and I will learn the verse in Arabic and I will learn the theology in Arabic. So if they do come back to me and say, well, that's not, that's not in the Arabic, then I can show them what is in the Arabic. And it's often worse, folks. It's often worse. Let me just read to you Surah 5, verse 6. O you who believe, when you intend to offer a salat, so prayers, wash your faces and your hands up to the elbows, rub um, passing wet hands over your head and your feet up to the ankles. Now, listen to this. If you are in a state of janaba, and the way it's translated in my English is that in a state of sexual discharge, that's what they're saying. When you're in a state of janaba, purify yourself. But if you are on a journey, that's one, or if you've come from the toilet, that's two, or, or, and here's the clincher, or you have been in contact with a woman, and if you find no water, then perform taumam with clean earth and rub therewith your faces and your hands. Allah does not want to place you in a, in a place of difficulty. This is the clincher. And I've often done this with Muslim friends. I read it through with them and say, ooh, I'm not sure I like what this verse says about me as a woman. So when you have been sexually active and you are in a state of uncleanliness, you are to clean. That's, that was also an Old Testament idea for both men and women. It's now an Islamic idea. So if you're in that state, you purify, you're on a journey, you come from the toilet, but if you touch a woman, it makes you unclean? This is serious. So you have the sexual state earlier on, touching a woman, but this is if you just have been with a woman, if you've touched a woman. That's why so many Muslim missionaries in London will never shake my hand. I'll put my hand out to shake their hand, which is English culture, and they'll never shake my hand uh, because it will make them unclean. And every time I say to them, What does that say about me as a woman? How does Allah view me as a woman? That I make a man unclean. Do you see how it reflects not only on the woman, but how it perverts the male mind, but also what does it say about Allah? What does it say about this God? And just work this through with Muslim friends. They will try to say that this touching of woman is a sexual touch. No, it's not. That's not implied. It is just touching a woman, um, shaking her hand. So it's a, it's, a, it's a way to help expose in a simple verse what this religion teaches about man and woman, cleanliness and uncleanliness, and the character of God. Then just take them back to how Jesus um, made us righteous before him because of his work um, on the cross in the New Testament. 
Now, I'm going to start unpacking and looking into some really important verses, the equality verses. I've really uh, looked a lot at Surah 2 earlier on last session and now Surah 4. We're going to look at Surah 33 and Surah 65, 66. These are probably the four important chapters to look at if you want to look at women in Islam. There's other chapters, there's other verses that talk about woman and man and so on. But these are the four helpful ones, Surah 2, Surah 4, Surah 33, 65 and 66. That might be five chapters I've thrown in there, <laughs> not four. So we're going to look at um, some of these chapters. And I think, I think it's so helpful to um, investigate the Quran for yourself. And as we ask these critiquing questions, we ask the critiquing questions because we love the Muslim. We do a comparison in your mind and think of verses and responses and alternatives that you can come up with in the Bible. And just look at how Jesus treated a woman and the teaching in the New Testament. So we're going to go to Surah 33, verse 32. Now, the verses I've just taught on in Surah 4 all come after one of the important equality verses. That's Surah 4, verse 1. So you have the equality verse, Surah 4, verse 1. There's a few verses that Muslims go to for the equality verse, verses. And they say that these, uh, it means that women are equal. Just read Surah 4.1. Surah 4.1 is very ambiguous. It's not very clear. It has the concept of how we were made from one, came from one uh, beginning, which is true. <laughs> and, and then it says, how, um, it says how God made you in, it seems to imply the wombs of a mother and so on. And you come from one source. I say, see, we're equal. Because we come from one beginning, one source. And I always say to a Muslim friend, okay, you say we come from one source. Well, the Bible says that God created male and female in his image. Takes it one step further, even more important, that the woman was made out of the man. Yes, one source. We, we come from one beginning. Well, the big difference is the Quranic story totally leaves out that man and woman are made in the image of God. So there's not anything innately special or valuable or different between a man and woman in Islam and the animals. They're just the same. There's something very different in the Bible because of we're made in the image of God. Animals are not. Then the other issue is, as the verses I've just talked to you in Surah 4, those are the verses, including what your right hand possesses and the beating of wives and women are unclean. Well, that's chapter 5. But still, all those verses, they follow this equality verse, this verse where we come from one, one entity, one, one beginning. And I always say to my Muslim friends, you say we come from one beginning. However, when you look at the life of a man and a woman, how man and woman are to interact, how they are to live their lives, <laughs> there's no equality there. There's no value in the woman and actually no value in the man. Um, there's no, there's no uh, uh, equal setting or standing in actual uh, the way they are to live their life in marriage, in the home, in, in, in business, in the public sphere, in the private sphere, and so on. There's no ennoblement of woman in the following verses. We're going to apply that same approach to Surah 33, verse 35. Surah 33, verse 35 is the big equality verse of the Quran. Every Muslim I know quotes it when they want to show the ennoblement and the emancipation of woman, when they want to show that man and woman is equal in this religion. I'm going to read this to you because it's an important verse to know, because especially in the West, it's this verse that is utilized over and over again to, bring, to show that man and woman are equal. Let me read it to you. Surah 33, verse 35. Verily, the Muslims, men and women, the believers, men and women, the men and women who are obedient, the men and women who are truthful, the men and women who are patient, 
the men and women who are humble, the men and women who give zatakat, um, and there's some Arabic words coming up, the men and women who observe the psalm, the fast, the men and women who guard their chastity, and the men and women who remember Allah with much with their hearts and their tongues, Allah has prepared them forgiveness and reward. Now, in the brackets in my English Quran, it says uh, that's paradise. That, by the way, is not in the Arabic. For any of you who are reading in the English, and I don't know if this is the case in other languages, but if you're reading an English Quran or translation, um, whatever is in the brackets is never in the Arabic or very rarely is in the Arabic. That's an interpreter's addition to the Quran. So just be aware of that. So uh, that verse, did you notice it said man and woman, man and woman, man and woman all the way through? And some people say, see, this means that man and woman are equal. Man and woman are both referred to. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in a minute to show you where it seems, originally according to the traditions and sayings of Muhammad, it seems that Allah forgot to include women in his revelation. And it wasn't until the women started complaining, oh Allah, you always refer to men and never women. And then after that, it says Allah began to also uh, refer to women in his revelation. Hold on to that. We'll just come to that in a minute. I want to just quickly show uh, what Surah 33 and 35 says about um, the, all the verses that surround this verses, uh, surround the, the, the equality verse. It's very, very interesting. We may take a couple sessions to go through this uh, portion of scripture. Why am I doing this with you? You might think, well, I could just pick up the Quran and read it for myself. Well, yes, you can. What I want to, to, to um, aid or to encourage and to show you to do, if you're not already doing this, is to look at a portion of scripture that a Muslim claims uh, ennobles their position in whatever way it is, and then to critique it. And to, the way to do it often is to just look at surrounding verses. And that's what we're going to start to do now. So uh, we're going to go to Surah 33, verse 32. And in Surah 33 to verse 32, um, the Quran begins to introduce stipulations on how people are to speak. So it talks about how women to lower their voice so that women are not, don't seduce a man. Uh, there's a certain way a woman isn't supposed to speak cause, so she doesn't seduce a man. And it's commendable that the Quran encourages that women and men don't seduce one another. That is commendable. Um, however, the way the Quran and Islam and uh, Islamic law and the, the, uh, the example of Muhammad uh, make that happen is to impose and enforce all these restrictions, all these regulations, all these uh, uh, direct edicts from, from heaven, from Allah, to, to tell the people how to behave. It doesn't treat people as adults. It, of course, the uh, Muslims don't have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you're not able to be transformed and apply the principles of God as the New Testament teaches. So for Muslims, they really are on their own. And the only way to implement any Islamic idea is by rules and regulations and force. And so that's why you have all these stipulations on how they are to behave. So, and gender segregation. We'll look at that in a minute. So, stipulations on how to speak. Then it says in Surah 33, uh, 33, 33, that uh, the women are encouraged to stay in the houses. And these are Muhammad's wives. They're encouraged to stay in the houses. The best place for you is in your houses. It says, beginning to limit the freedoms of women. Remember, Muhammad's wives are the, uh, are the mother, of, mother of all women, it says. And so if they're the mother of all women, that's how they're viewed. Then there are limitations put on them. Um, again, it impacts those of us who live today. Because what, how they are to live is the role model for how Muslim women are to live today. It says, obey, and this is a clincher. Obey Muhammad as you obey Allah. 
Whatever Allah and Muhammad have obeyed, you have no choice in the matter. Let me just, we'll come back in the next session to, to chapter 33. Before we do that, I want to read a couple of verses to you. Um, Surah 4 verse 80 says this, He who obeys the messenger has indeed obeyed Allah. Surah 53 verse uh, 3 says this, uh, 33, Nor does he speak from his own desire, it is only a revelation revealed. Surah 47 33, And Allah said, O you who believe, obey Allah and obey the messenger. Surah 33.21, Indeed, in the Messenger of Allah, you have a good example to follow, who hopes in Allah and the last day. Surah 68, verse 4. And verily, you, talking to Muhammad, are an exalted person in character. So this man's put on a pedestal. Uh, Whatever Allah and Muhammad has decreed, you have no choice in the matter. This is also in the context of the equality verse and in the context of verses that are talking to Muhammad's wives. So they have no choice in the matter. So if Muhammad decrees it, his wives have no choice in the matter. They have to obey. It's this, it's this dictatorial, oppressive regime that Muhammad and Allah are putting into place, even over his own family. Because it's this chapter that talks about his, some of his domestic situations. And we're going to look at that in the next half hour. Before we do that, I want to just refer back. Do you remember when, I, when we read this and it said, oh, man and woman, oh, man and woman, oh, man and woman, all the way through. And of course, Muslims say this is the great equality verse. So what is interesting, and this is where most Muslims um, don't know this, and you have to do a little bit of investigation. If you read the exegetes of Islam, if you read the tafsir, the tafsir gives you the context of revelation for every Quranic verse. Some of the hadith gives you the context of revelation for some of the Quranic verses. And, so, and the biography, the sirah, gives the context of revelation for these Quranic verses. When you read the Quran, it is often hard to understand what it's teaching. It's hard to understand the context. You often have to go to outside literature, the biography, the sayings, the exegetes to know how to interpret a piece of scripture of the Quran. And with this particular verse where it says, oh, men and women, oh, men and women, all the way through and includes both the man and woman, you have to go outside to the tafsir. And I'm going to just tell you why this verse was revealed according to Muslim tradition. So these are stories that Muslims themselves have come up with. It's come up 200, 300 years after the event, which makes it very suspect, but Muslims have to believe it. And in the Arabic, it's called Asbab al-Nuzul. The Asbab al-Nuzul is context of revelation. It's a huge theology or interpretive theology within Islam. You have to be aware of it. So let me just uh, read to you some of uh, the context of revelation, the Asbab al-Nuzul. Uh, um Salama Asama came up to uh, Muhammad and um, she says this, and it's in reference. So what these exegetes will do, they'll quote the verse, Surah 33, 35, and then they will give you the Asbab al-Nazul, the context of revelation of when and why this verse was revealed. Here's the reason, according to some of the exegetes. Oh, apostle of God, you always mention men and ignore women. Then it says, then the verse was sent down. Another one, Osama, this is a little bit more detailed. Muhammad's wife, this is one of Muhammad's wives, says to him, Oh, apostle of God, I do not hear that God has mentioned anything for the immigrant women. These are the Muslim women. Then God sent down and their Lord has accepted them and answered them. Never will I suffer to be lost the work of any of you. And that's the context of Revelation, the Asbab al-Nazul for Surah 3, 195. And my question to Muslims is this, to understand much of this book, 
you have to go to sources that were written two to three hundred years later. But also to, to understand these equality verses where, where it, seem, it seems that these equality verses were only added, and I say equality because I don't believe they are equal, but those equality verses were revealed only after women complained. This is all according to Islamic tradition. So again, it's, it's very difficult for Muslims because uh, they, they have to go to outside sources that are not authoritative and they, they don't understand what this verse, these verses mean. And it causes a lot of confusion when they try to understand and try to interpret these verses, especially as we unpack the surrounding verses. We'll do more of this in the next session.